I think the last three years has taught us how to treat respiratory distress much better. One of the top 10 causes of death. Is the patient clinically improving? Based upon this new article, should we change practice? To me, this is a no-brainer. You don't suddenly reverse pneumonia. That's not how it works. I would say it's kind of a game changer. Welcome everyone to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. This is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. And welcome to one of our April podcasts. So happy that you're joining us for this discussion. As we do in many of our podcasts, we are gonna touch on a hot off the press article that may be practice changing and refers to a very, very common condition that we manage and that is community acquired pneumonia. But Since we talk about critical care perspectives, we are going to hit on the severe community-acquired pneumonia and revisit a therapy that has been looked at in the past and, well, based upon this new article, should we change practice? But before we jump into the discussion on this hot off the press article, let me bring in my amazing co-stars that you know so very well here on CCPEM, Dr. Peter W., Dr. John Greenwood, and Dr. Rob Rodriguez. Gentlemen, We're recording here in April. Things are looking good. We're still encountering a lot of severe weather, at least in the United States, but nonetheless, in the Northern Hemisphere, we are getting a little bit different and finally making the turn towards warmer weather. Peter, how goes it in your neck of the woods? So in New Orleans, it has been pretty balmy. Spring is full on, and you would think that some of the days are summer-like, no real winter time. So we're hitting off the festival season with very soon having the New Orleans French Quarter Festival followed by Jazz Fest. And so we're thrilled. Outstanding. Sounds great. Dr. Greenwood, how about Philadelphia? Philadelphia is absolutely wonderful. It's a little schizophrenic in terms of the weather, but I'm definitely excited to head down to New Orleans soon and meet up with hopefully some of you guys for the resuscitation post-conference from AEM. And not that I don't love Philadelphia because it's getting to be baseball season and looking forward to getting out to the ballpark soon. Completely agree. And thanks for mentioning that. We've talked about a few conferences and AAEM is upcoming soon, a little bit later in April in Peter's hometown of New Orleans. So definitely going to be looking forward to traveling down there in the Big Easy, correct? All right. Well, let's round out with Dr. Rodriguez out on the West Coast. Rob, how are you this podcast recording? Doing great. The weather here is still a bit chilly for my taste and rainy, but I think we have hopefully seen the last of these days of showers. And yeah, everything's going well out here. Sounds great. Well, let's turn now our attention to the focus for this podcast, our educational discussion. And that, as I mentioned, is going to be on severe community-acquired pneumonia, And that is based on a article that just was published online within the last few weeks in the New England Journal of Medicine. And to lead us through this discussion, Dr. Greenwood, I'm going to turn things over to you to begin our discussion. Well, thanks, Mike. And this article will no doubt make waves at your hospital and within the emergency medicine medical community. It was actually just presented at the 2023 International Symposium on Intensive Care and Emergency Medicine. And some of you may have heard about this conference. It's in Brussels every year. And if you get a chance, this is probably one of the summary publications I look forward to every year. They put together a list of 
basically the top 10 emergency medicine critical care articles every year. It's about 10, and it's definitely worth a download and a read. But this topic that we're going to be talking about that was presented was by a group of physician scientists in France. The lead author was Dr. DeQuinn and is a paper that was also published at the same time of presentation in New England Journal called Hydrocortisone in Severe Community Acquired Pneumonia. So I think all of us have seen CAP on an almost daily basis when we work in the emergency department. It's a common diagnosis and it has a full spectrum of severity. In fact, about one and a half million adults each year are hospitalized in the United States. And it's one of the top 10 causes of death. So not only can it present with benign symptoms, used to getting out of COVID season and viral flu season, but acute bacterial pneumonia is extraordinarily common and has a high mortality associated with it, especially in severe cases. So in addition to the primary infection, though, patients can also experience a really severe inflammatory response. And this can lead to impaired lung function, gas exchange, multi-organ failure, and historically, some clinicians have led towards treating severe pneumonia with glucocorticoids, with steroids. And the thought is, is that this will reduce the inflammation, extravascular lung water, and may help improve the likelihood of recovery. Well, to date, there are seven randomized control trials that have found positive non-mortality benefits of steroids and severe CAP, but only one small Italian trial that actually reduced mortality. So we all know steroids and pneumonia is a controversial topic, so much so that the current American Thoracic Society and Infectious Disease Society guidelines recommend against using steroids in severe CAP because they say the evidence isn't all that high quality. But then if you turn to the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine and Society of Critical Care Medicine in the US, their guidelines favor the use. So again, controversial topic, ripe for discussion and certainly welcoming to this randomized control trial that was just published about a week ago. So let's start with Rob. Maybe walk us through the early literature of why this topic's so controversial and then some of the objectives and methods of this paper. Yeah, thanks, John. So as you mentioned, there's been really one study that showed a improvement in mortality with hydrocortisone in severe community-acquired pneumonia. That was a very small study, only 46 patients in that study. And that was way back in 2005. There have been a couple of other studies that have looked at this issue. Fernandez Serrano in 2011 looked at methylprednisolone and SCAP and found improved resolution of hypoxia, but no difference in mortality. And that was a 56-patient randomized control trial. And then in 2015, Torres et al. tried five days of methylprednisolone, and they found that in severe community-acquired pneumonia, and they found that the methylprednisolone group had decreased incidence of progression to shock, less need for invasive mechanical ventilation, or death within 72 hours of treatment, and that was 120 patients. And then there's also the DEXA-ARDS trial in which they gave 10 days of dexamethasone and found that this therapy reduced mortality in non-COVID ARDS. And that wasn't specific to severe community-acquired pneumonia, but it was basically for non-COVID ARDS. So there's 
a lot of signal in these prior trials that steroids may be of help in severe community-acquired pneumonia. And the objective of these investigators was to evaluate whether hydrocortisone reduced mortality at 28 days compared to usual care in ICU patients with severe community-acquired pneumonia. This was a double-blind randomized control superiority trial of hydrocortisone versus placebo. It was at 31 French centers from October 2015 to March 2020, and they stopped enrollment at the onset of the COVID-19 outbreak. They included adults over 18. They had to have the diagnosis of pneumonia with clinical and radiographic criteria, and severe pneumonia was defined requiring one of four criteria, either mechanical ventilation that could be in both invasive or non-invasive ventilation. They could be on high-flow nasal cannula with an inspired FiO2 of greater than 50% or PO2 to FiO2 ratio less than 300. They could be using non-rebreather mask with a PO2 FiO2 ratio of less than 300, or they could have a pneumonia severity index, one of those scoring systems, score greater than 130. They also had to be able to be randomized and receive allocated treatment within 24 hours of onset of severity criteria. So basically, they were looking at adults with pneumonia and basically hypoxia or some degree of respiratory failure. And the patients they excluded included those who had do not intubate orders, pneumonia caused by influenza, and they also excluded patients with septic shock. That's awesome, Rob. So I think you made the point perfectly. These were hypoxic adults who required an escalating level of oxygen support above just standard nasal cannula with significant severity of illness. And what's interesting, and we'll talk about this a little bit, is the enrollment challenges that they had with COVID that they had to work around. But this is what we look for, a randomized, double-blind superiority trial looking at hydrocortisone versus placebo. So Peter, now that we have an idea of what their objective was and the patients that were enrolled, walk us through the trial procedures. What was the therapeutic arm? What was the control? How did they do it? Sure, absolutely. Thanks, John and Rob, for setting this up. And so this is how the trial rolled out. There are two groups, really. The control group who received a blinded injection of placebo, which wound up being normal saline, according to the same regimen used in the hydrocortisone group. Now, in the hydrocortisone group, they received hydrocortisone treatment where the dose and duration was actually determined on day four by a predefined discontinuation criteria. So everybody got it in the first four days, all the same, but what you got beyond that was based on their discontinuation plan and criteria. So those two groups look like this. There was the short duration group who received hydrocortisone for a total of eight days. And there was 200 milligrams for four days, and then followed by the taper, which was 100 milligrams for two days, and then 50 milligrams for two days. Now compare that short duration of eight days group to the long duration group, which was a total of 14 days. And so that wound up being 200 milligrams instead of four days, now seven days, and then followed by a taper of 100 instead of two days, four days, 
and then followed by 50 milligrams for three days instead of the short duration of two days. Now, what criteria did they use to figure out whether you were going to be in the short duration group or the long duration group? And again, spontaneously breathing patients, the PaO2 to FiO2 ratio had to be greater than 200. And the day four SOFA score was less than the day one SOFA score. And then a high probability that the patient will be able to be discharged from the ICU by day 14. So the primary outcome being measured by the study was survival with favorable neurological outcomes with a CPC score, and we've talked about that here on prior podcasts, of one or two at 30 days. What are the secondary outcomes? Well, clinical outcomes, a 90-day mortality, patients not progressing to mechanical ventilation, a 28-day incidence of endotracheal intubation initiation, so those people who required invasive ventilation, and then 28-day incidence of vasopressor initiation. So again, these people who went on to have shock within those 28 days. Adverse events, 28-day incidence of hospital-acquired infection, the ventilator-associated pneumonia or VAP, bloodstream infection, GI bleeding, insulin requirements for hyperglycemia, and then weight change through hospital day seven. Those were the adverse events. Now, the sample size, the power calculation was for just over 1,100 patients. So 1,146 patients were needed to provide 80% power to detect a 25% relative risk reduction in mortality from the baseline of 27%. 800 patients enrolled before COVID. Then the trial was actually paused. After COVID, the DSMB met in July of 2021 and recommended discontinuation of enrollment at planned second interim analysis because, number one, they felt an additional 400 patients were unlikely to change outcome to a negative trial. Number two, as a result, they thought it would be unethical to continue to give placebo. And then number three, the prolonged suspension due to COVID-19 would adversely affect trial enrollment. Wow, that's really interesting, Peter. So before we just touch on that sample size, I think this is really a technically challenging schedule of steroids to understand. And I think for the emergency physician, I think the important part to take away here is that the first day, day one dose was 200 milligrams of hydrocortisone over 24 hours, right? And so for us who are taking care of these critically ill community-acquired pneumonia patients in the ED, just recognizing of starting that initial hydrocortisone therapy, if we're going to take on the results of this trial, if we're going to follow kind of the outcomes, which we'll talk about in a second, is an early upfront dose of hydrocortisone. But essentially, the intensivist had to make a decision at day four based off of basically, is the patient clinically improving to whether or not to stick with that short dose or that eight-day dose or that 14-day dose. So thanks for breaking it down for us, because I think that's really helpful. And certainly, it's interesting that they decided a priori that they're going to have these interim analyses. But after COVID happened, 
they did an analysis and were concerned that their trial was so positive that they felt like it would be unethical to continue giving placebo. You don't see that all that often. So I know we're building up these results. So Mike, maybe you can walk us through what did they find that was so impressive that they decided to stop the trial at the second analysis? Well, thanks, John. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Rob, for setting the stage. And we're building here towards a positive trial based upon the language that we've used. So let's go through just a little bit of the specifics with respect to the results. So as you just heard, 800 patients were randomized, just five were excluded. So 795 were included in the final analysis, pretty evenly split, 400 getting hydrocortisone, 395 getting placebo. Who were these patients? Well, in general, the cohorts were pretty well matched. The mean age was in the mid 60s, 70% were male. And comorbidities across both groups or all groups were pretty well matched with respect to COPD, diabetes, any type of immunosuppression along with the pneumonia severity index. The pathogen when it was identified in close to about 50% of patients, most were due to strep pneumo and less than 10% were ultimately due to non-bacterial causes, whether that was viral or fungal pneumonia. With respect to the respiratory support provided to these 800 patients, a little over 40% got high flow nasal cannula, about a quarter, so 22% got non-invasive ventilation, about 22%, so roughly just shy of a quarter, got invasive mechanical ventilation, and then a smaller percentage of close to 15% were managed using a non-rebreather. Now that primary outcome, so you heard Peter talk about survival with favorable neurologic outcome. Well, in placebo, that was about 12% compared to those getting hydrocortisone, just 6.2%, a statistically significant finding. When looking at those secondary outcomes, really there weren't any differences in the secondary outcome. The primary difference or the main difference was in that primary outcome of survival with favorable neurologic outcome. With respect to the adverse effects, well, in essence, adverse events, namely a higher cumulative amount of insulin required, not surprisingly was seen in the hydrocortisone group. Now, with respect to predefined subgroups, looking for benefit, those that may benefit from hydrocortisone. In essence, that was found in patients not requiring mechanical ventilation. So most of the patients, as found in women, those that also had a high pneumonia severity index score, so greater than 130, and then older folks age greater than 65. So I think, John, we're going to talk about limitations momentarily as we enter now into a group discussion on this particular paper. But just a limitation identified by the authors in the paper is that looking at that overall 12% mortality in the placebo group, that was lower than expected. They based calculations and numbers on a, a lot higher mortality rate for severe community-acquired pneumonia. So it was a little less than half of that. So 27% versus 12% was the overall mortality in the control group. So was this ultimately a less sick cohort? Well, I guess let's transition into our discussion. Yeah, I don't know. And I'm interested in your guys' thoughts on this because I think it could almost be a chicken and an egg thing, right? Like we've definitely shifted how we manage from an oxygen support standpoint, our critically ill pneumonia patients, right? At least I know at University of Pennsylvania, we have. We've shifted towards a lot more liberal use of high-flow nasal cannula and less 
just straight to intubation. Whereas historically, you know, I think the literature out there would suggest that late intubation is a bad thing. So like, I don't know if this means that the patients were less sick or if it's a shift in clinical care. What do you guys think? I'll start with Rob. How about your practice out in San Francisco? Would you say it's more consistent with just a change in strategy or do you think it was a sicker cohort? I don't know. I think it may be a little bit of each. You know, we certainly have moved to non-invasive ventilation in our respiratory distress patients and pneumonia patients a lot in the past, I'd say, 10 years. So there's certainly that. But I also think that part of their finding that the mortality was lower is just really just kind of more testament to how hard it is to predict that outcome in your population study. When you design a study like this, randomized trial, you traditionally rely on historical numbers. But then again, the people that they're including, they have to consent to the trial. They have to do all of that. And so that's going to change the actual enrollment group. And that would tend to favor probably a less sick enrollment group than you had anticipated. So I would guess that the difference in mortality is largely due to just the methodology and anticipated changes in study outcomes like that. But you're asking me what I think about this paper. To me, this is a no-brainer in terms of hydrocortisone. There's just been such a strong signal for steroids in pneumonia care for some time now. And there's very, very little downside to giving hydrocortisone or steroids. And I have yet to really see a study that shows significant adverse events. So I would say it's kind of a game changer in that I started giving hydrocortisone and steroids to my community acquired pneumonia patients a while back. And now I have just even more evidence and I think you'd probably be wrong not to at this point. Wow. All right, Peter, what do you think? You know, John, I love what Rob has had to say, but I'll say something a little bit different. It's not in contrary to what he has to say, but in addition to what he has to say. I think the last three years has taught us how to treat respiratory distress much better. And I think we're better at it, both in the emergency department as well as in the ICU. You know, traditionally, we look at the pathology of community-acquired pneumonia. Even if you know the pathogen, the patient progresses. So if I know that you've got strep pneumonia, we'll do a rapid test, some antigen-related test on your sputum or something else, and we give you a drug that we know the strep is sensitive to, your pneumonia clinically progresses over the next 48 hours right? You don't suddenly reverse pneumonia. That's not how it works, right? And so typically people get worse. And I think we were used to saying, okay, if you got multi-lobar pneumonia, your respiratory rates in excess of 30 on a hundred percent non-rebreather, we're just going to preemptively intubate you because we know where this is going in the next 48 hours. And I think now because of COVID, because of our experience in the pandemic, because of our experience with acutely ill patients with respiratory distress, we're much more likely to use non-invasive ventilation and in particular, humidified high-flow nasal cannula. And I think 
understanding that and the benefits that that's offered our patients from a mortality standpoint kind of changes our picture. I liken it to the ARISE study with sepsis, you know, when we're already doing many of those things and, you know, saw improvement in mortality because we were already doing really smart things in treating patients with sepsis and didn't see the mortality differences we expected to. I think you're seeing a similar picture here. That's my take. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. You know, we've probably gotten a lot better at picking the right therapy at the right time for the right patient. I think that's a good way to put it. And it may be that starting these steroids, if you look at that subgroup of patients not requiring mechanical ventilation as maybe benefit, maybe it's a timing thing. I don't know that this trial tells us the right timing, but it certainly, again, adds the signal of maybe earlier on before the wheels fall off, starting hydrocortisone may be beneficial to reduce some of the downstream inflammatory effects. Mike, what are your thoughts? It's really hard to add into what you guys have said anything new. It's really sage and sound advice and analysis. As I think over this and implications in terms of what we're doing in the emergency department, I think as Peter alluded to, over the past three years, we've become comfortable someone coming in with, we know COVID, hypoxia requiring O2 and initiating dexamethasone. We've gotten comfortable with that. And now thinking about expanding beyond that, moving beyond, say, someone specifically with COVID, but truly coming in at the point of entry, the point of care, having severe community-acquired pneumonia and implementing supplemental O2, plus minus needing mechanical ventilation. I think this gives us additional evidence to say in that cohort, this looks to be beneficial and something that we should strongly consider. Now, I don't know the difference to me. Maybe there is, and someone probably will certainly talk about differences in corticosteroids. To me, I don't know that there's a tremendous difference between hydrocortisone and dexamethasone and corticosteroids in general. I'm sure someone could cite that, but I don't know. In my opinion, doesn't make significant sense that there would be this difference with a certain corticosteroid. Yeah, I agree there. We use prednisone or hydrocortisone equivalents here when we're converting between steroids anyway. We have some way to do that. This trial happened to use hydrocortisone, but I think certainly whether or not your institution decides to use dexamethasone or hydrocortisone or whatever, I'm sure there'll be important discussions around that with the pharmacy group and what's available depending on what shortages we have in the United States. You know, So being able to be flexible is important. I think one thing that may come out of the discussion, there's always this discussion of stopping a trial early and whether or not it was just a matter of at the interim analysis, if you have a strong positive effect, should you stop based on a power analysis? Now, I know some have gone through, and if you do the fragility index calculation, it's six patients. So it's not outside of the realm of this could have changed in the last 400 subjects that were enrolled. But at the same time, I trust that there are statisticians who've been working in this trial that really thought hard about this. And so it will be a point of contention. But overall, as I think all of you said, it seems like these findings are aligned with lots of important things, biological plausibility, previous study and trial signals that steroids early in severe community-acquired pneumonia are beneficial. So that's the Cape Cod trial. We were joking around. This was done in France. Perhaps they were nudging the New England Journal by naming it Cape Cod trial. 
to get that publication through. But whatever they did, they got across the line. Congratulations to the authors on these multi-center large clinical trials are really hard to do. So this may be one that really changes our practice. All right. Well, gentlemen, that was an outstanding discussion. I so look forward to our podcast because we choose those hot off the press articles, those potentially game-changing, practice-changing things that we really need to know and really implement and consider implementing in our practice, in the care of these patients, whether they're coming into the ED, whether we're admitting them to the ICU, whether the ICU is receiving them from another unit or direct admission, et cetera, a transfer. These are really, really important topics. And thanks so much, gentlemen, for taking the time to have this discussion, educate us on this important component, and take home Pearl from the latest hot off the press literature. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this podcast. Thanks so much for joining us here in April. We will look to get another podcast posted. We will be mining the literature, mining topics, and really, we will look forward to talking to you next time on CCPM. Wishing you all well, and until our next podcast, bye for now.